Co. This is the Flagship Pod, a weekly podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you, you know, kind of a grab bag episode this week. We've got, we're in a lull between two big phases of earnings season. Big tech is done, but retail is about to step up to the plate. And we're seeing a lot of really interesting macro reports, making the global economy seem a lot more confusing than it did maybe a couple of months ago. So as always, to help me unpack that, as always, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good? Where are you, where are you calling in from today, dude? Yeah, back uh, back at the desk. Just uh, was able to take a little bit of time off last week. Um, happy to be back at it, though, and just catch up on all the things we missed. Have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about here, product enhancements in, in the app, um, and just a lot of new features continuously rolling out and you know, obviously trying to beef up the research this year. We've been fortunate. I've had an amazing year with a lot of our picks and just kind of pushing on forward. Exactly. And audience, I think we'll get into that a little bit too as we like understand exactly the criteria we're using to define who's a winner and who's a loser in this market because it's becoming a little bit more complicated and we've kind of refined our search a little bit as we, you know, look under the hood at these various companies and see who wins and who loses. But we'll get into that, you know, later on. First, Justin, let's focus on the macro real quick. I think the big news is the market's a little flat today after getting a little bit euphoric yesterday when the CPI came in a little bit lower than expected. CPI's leveling off. Uh, we had inflation rise a little bit over three percent year over year last month when it was just dead on three back in from June from July to July, uh, from June to June right so I'm just so looking at all of this uh, one really fascinating thing about this inflation report that I'm just obsessed with if you take rent out of the equation inflation's kind of done and the cool thing about that is is rent is one of those things that lags so the market is really anticipating that we're going to see housing inflation decrease a lot over time and it's all of these services all of our food, all of our um, various other big expenditures that have been keeping inflation up are going down in such a way that it's negating like a 20% increase in the price of oil in the past two months. So Justin, um, are we going to, is it mission accomplished? Did the Fed beat this thing out? Is soft landing guaranteed? Like, what do you think about this inflation report and how are you looking at the overall U.S. economy moving forward, dude? Yeah, it's interesting to see exactly your point that it continuously decreases, which is exactly what we're looking for. Obviously, to your point, rents are still up significantly, but that's a function uh, of a trailing indicator in terms of people being locked in usually for 12 to 24 month lease cycles. So once a lot of these uh, like basically cease to exist and there's new cycles going forward, I think that will be a huge thing to watch because living costs are obviously such a massive portion of most people's um, like monthly spend. Uh, past that, there are obviously cities that are kind of falling outside of the norm, like New York, where rents continue to increase, you know, month over month. But across the country, we're expecting for them to come down um, as this starts to normalize a bit. The one thing always to watch for is, you know, food and energy prices. They're just so volatile. And obviously, a lot of the times it's excluded from just like how the Fed is looking at inflation because it's so volatile. But again, at the end of the day, food and energy is what basically keeps the world going around. So it's, it's still important. So we're, we're continuously watching that. Um, but past that, it really looks like the Fed is continuously delivering on their mission of lowering inflation. So looking at what the market's expecting, you know, right now, it's expected that they should start the way things are being priced is that they we're going to start cutting rates as, as early as 2024, early 2024. When the Fed had been saying it's not going to happen to the back half. But if inflation is really down this much um, and 
you know, keeping rates above 5% is a stress on the economy. There, There's not really a massive reason to at least level off and or start leveling go, going down soon. And so that's what the market's pricing in right now. Um, obviously, things are subject to change, but it's really interesting to see that pricing in because that date is now approaching obviously faster than ever, given we're in the middle point of August right now. So I think that's why, you know, a lot of this has been priced in so far as inflation has decreased, the market has ripped higher. And that's why the NASDAQ is up so much to start this year. But I think what's really interesting as part of that, and this is what we need to watch for going forward more so than anything, is really just going to be what happens now. The market is pricing in the fact that like we think or that the market thinks there's a really good chance that rates start decreasing early next year. So if that does happen, then how do we react accordingly? So NASDAQ's up 38% this year, but it's actually down 1% over the last month. Um, and in the last five days, it's down 2%. So I don't want to read too much into that, but it's interesting to see that a lot of these growth names now are stalling. And what that tells us is that with rates expected to decrease next year, um, value starting to outperform growth over the last month, that a lot of the upside is priced in. And I think the next catalyst we'll need to see is actual earnings growth because the multiple on the earnings growth has has definitely been priced in. A lot of these companies are at the upper end of where they're typically valued as a, a multiple of, you know, on revenue or earnings or whatever the the measure is. They're they're at the much higher end. They're trading much richer than usual. So, I think in terms of the next move up for another 40 percent up in these stocks, what we're going to need to see is now earnings growth. And so, if the Fed lowers rates and a lot of these companies can resume their earnings growth going forward, then I think they can grind higher. But with rates higher, a lot of this priced in, the next few months could be pretty choppy until we get more data suggesting that we're really on the other side of this thing. So I think it's a long-winded way of saying right now we're at this interesting inflection point where a lot of the upside has been priced in. I don't think that the back half of the year is going to move like the first half of the year. And we'll just continuously watch to see how earnings um, growth either increases or decreases, how inflation continues to respond, and therefore what the Fed does and how that affects the rest of the market. So it's a very interesting point um, right now and going forward. I think this is where we need to be positioning ourselves because we're kind of at a very different dynamic going forward than where we were for the first half of the year. And to piggyback off of that too, Justin, just to um, like look into that a little bit more, with the NASDAQ being down 2%, one thing we want to keep in mind, though, is that the NASDAQ is largely being carried by the biggest of big tech right now. The, the thing that we're really interested in seeing is it's really exciting seeing uh, Meta just keep doing what it was doing. Like Basically, our next report on Meta, now that they've smashed through our price target, is just a copy and paste of the previous report from Meta because what just keeps happening is, is they're just ramming as hard down on the accelerator as they possibly can. Meanwhile, Alphabet is actually delivering on their AI promises. And so right now you're at this breath where we're not going to see earnings growth from any big tech players for a while. And the sort of B squad within the NASDAQ isn't doing so well. We expected Zoom Info to do a lot better, but it seems like their sales team kind of just fell asleep in June and just kind of forgot to keep selling the service um, and, and a lot of other things. And I think one big catalyst that people should gear up for in at least in the next two weeks is NVIDIA because one big driving factor for this in entire bull run we're seeing is this AI revolution. When you see it at scale, it works. Like Meta and Alphabet are already just completely churning in terms of 
AI growth internally and their AI services bringing a lot of value to the table. Like Meta basically gearing up to announce an actual AI assistant in late September. That's huge. But the only way that AI revolution actually gets powered is if somebody can print enough silicon to get it in front of as many people as possible. So there are sky-high expectations for NVIDIA in two weeks, and the main question we have is can they actually meet it? If NVIDIA meets expectations, bull run continues, but if we see NVIDIA kind of falter and not really... Again, it's, I can't even imagine them meeting these kinds of expectations, but I also could not imagine them doing it back in Q1, which they absolutely did. So it's very exciting to think about where they are in their in their growth cycle. But if NVIDIA meets those expectations, we can kind of anticipate uh, the market pricing an even more upside as a lot of this AI revolution feels pretty real. Like it is making Uber way more productive. It's making... Instagram Reels, an actual competitor to TikTok, and it's making people actually watch um, YouTube Shorts, which is pretty much the worst thing Google's ever done. But it's actually getting, in sort of like worldwide uh, circles, a lot more adoption now, thanks to just really, really strong optimizations across these boards. So that's that's why we're seeing this level off, is that AI is only working if you're already at scale right now, because you have the ability to just pave an entire valley in California and turn it into a server farm that's just for AI chips. Um, but for the B players, it's going to take a long time for them to catch up. And a lot of people think that uh, the B squad's going to get cannibalized by the big players just getting more and more efficient. Like, we're kind of solving our productivity problem via AI right before our eyes, and it's crazy. But the main question the market has is, is this real? And we won't really know, you know, for another couple of quarters as these things kind of shake out. We're still in the upswing right now. So that's very exciting, but we need to see that sort of trickle down to the rest of the economy especially the rest of the nasdaq like one thing we're really nervous about i'm personally nervous about for next week is palo alto networks um their stock's taking it they're, they're strong they're beating our price target right now but they took a little bit of a hit when microsoft announced they were getting more into the security side of things which is kind of pan w's bread and butter right so we're either in a situation where the nasdaq is just going to turn into five companies basically and the rest are just going to get absolutely like destroyed by these companies who can actually afford the scale necessary to have real ai or we're going to see you know as those efficiencies play out as smaller companies can make more investment and sort of like supercharge their systems as well we'll see more niches play out so again that's what we're thinking about in terms of this area of volatility and i think one thing that's really driving that today specifically justin to kind of shift away from individual stocks to shift away from thinking about winners and losers and back into the macro is the fact that it kind of looks like the world economy is on a bit of a tipping point right now with u.s inflation and inflation in the in western countries getting more and more under control we're watching the chinese economy go the opposite direction like the chinese cpi this week tipped into deflation like prices across the board declined 0.3 percent in china uh, lending growth in china has decreased 50 percent down to the lowest it's been since 2009 um same deal uh, china's biggest property developer um also just announced that their revenues declined 60 percent year over year as they're just kind of desperate to make sure they get their profits back under control before they default. Um, are we looking at the uh, possible? Is Chinese collapse back on the table, Justin, or am I overreacting here? No, I mean, deflation and like the China economy slowing down is a very real fear. And that's why a lot of the emerging market stocks outside of, you know, what's going on with in terms of uh, China, of like just meddling in the affairs of companies are, are down so much to start the year. And so... What we're seeing right now is a, a few interesting things. And so prices, to your point, in China potentially are or are, are really starting, or sorry, not potentially, are falling. And so like taking a step back and like looking at this more holistically, mo many developed countries basically saw, you know, over the last year or two, 
uh, a boom in consumer spending after the pandemic restrictions ended. In the U.S. specifically, the government obviously pumped a ton of money. They lowered rates. Um, and so a lot of people who had saved money were, able, were basically over the last year or two able to spend a ton. Uh, and that's why we saw demand increase so substantially. And then because COVID was still like hurting supply chains, there was a massive like step back in supply. And that's why we saw inflation. But that's not exactly what happened in China. Uh, where prices didn't soar as the economy started to emerge because they had the world's, basically the world's tightest coronavirus rules. And so basically what happened here in the U.S. was the complete opposite of what happened there. And we we didn't see this surge in demand. Um, and so what's happening now is that they've basically been at the cusp of deflation for the last few months. Um, as weaker and weaker demand happens due to these crazy high restrictions. And now the restrictions are off. They're kind of like in this weird limbo area. And so the prices being charged by China's manufacturers have also then been falling because demand has been depressed for so long. And so what's worrisome for most right now is that the demand in China is continuously being poor while the rest of the world has like obviously been very weak for the last year or two. And deflation is not going to help China, and it's not going to help the U.S. either, which we can get into in a second. Um, but effectively, if your purchasing price decreases or your purchasing power decreases, the debt in your country becomes more heavy. Um, and ultimately, all of this just ends up to not a good scenario. And so looking at it like more granularly, we see that China produces basically a massive proportion of the world's goods. They're, they're huge exporters because they're doing things, you know, in theory with cheap labor. And so a potential positive impact of like an extended period of deflation in the country could help like curb rising prices in other parts of the world because it'll be cheaper to export these goods. But if these, you know, cut price goods in the Chinese economy end up flooding global markets, it could actually have a pretty big negative impact on manufacturers in other countries. Um, And that could end up spurring like this kind of pretty chaotic cycle where then manufacturers and non-Chinese companies can't compete with the Chinese companies because it's so cheap. And then we start getting into, instead of a demand side issue, we're start getting into the supply side issue where these companies aren't growing as much. And so the, the economy actually starts contracting. And so in a period of deflation, while it's, you know, in theory, good for consumers, it's actually really bad for businesses. And so if those businesses are doing poorly, it ends up affecting consumers because those are consumers working at those businesses. And it starts to be this chain effect where deflation actually ends up being a bigger problem than inflation. Obviously, like the price of goods increasing is tough for consumers, but it's sustainable. Companies are technically making more money, even if the purchasing power is going down. But in a scenario where this goes down, it end up could causing like a massive recession in China and then also causing basically a massive recession in other parts of the globe if the contagion isn't affected. Um, so long story short, while China's economy is really facing a ton of hurdles um, as exports continue to get hurt um, and imports have dropped as well, basically these issues with the government pairing with deflationary issues, pairing with um, their birth rate decreasing, there, there's a lot of real issues going on within China. So We'll see what happens, but we wouldn't be surprised to see if China, the government steps in and have some sort of stimulus package or tax cuts or just something that spurs the economy a little bit just because they're they're in a bad place. And if that contagion gets spread to the rest of the world, obviously it's going to be a, 
a big problem or a big impact here in the U.S. So something we're watching for closely is like this contagion effect in China spreading to the U.S. And to like sort of like belay those fears too, audience, like while we are concerned about this and watching it very closely, because in a lot of ways, like this is probably the beginning of like a longer decline for China just because like their demographic mix right now. One thing I want to point out is that like the depths of our inflationary spiral kind of coincided with the very last state to end their lockout restrictions. That was California. And that was around about 18 months ago, like a little bit less, a little bit more than a year ago. Right. And it's taken us this long to go from all of our COVID lockdowns downs to, oh, if we just ignore rent, then inflation's totally under control. So turns out uh, when you shut down an entire neoliberal economy um, with billions of people, it's going to take a long time for that to sort of like sputter back to life, so to speak. So this moment of deflation, this moment of degrowth happening in China might just be the the sort of like spasms you see as the country tries to completely restart an old economic engine because, you know, we're seeing a lot of like burnout in the Chinese system as well. People, you know, don't see a lot of work, right? now there's a lot of differing factors that are kind of keeping people sort of out of the market and that's kind of affecting growth right now as well so we're anticipating that uh, well honestly it's impossible to know what's going to happen next but one month of data is not enough to start freaking out so what you're seeing is exports and imports both declined by double digits you're seeing lending growth also just completely lending activity just totally collapse right but all of that can just be oh there's going to be some peaks and troughs while they restart this engine because if there's any centralized system that has the ability to push an economy back towards growth with cheap capital, it's the current Chinese system. It's just a matter of can they you know, push their demographics in a way that will help that keep up. So nothing to freak out about yet, but if this continues, it becomes a very, very big concern for the global system because a lot of, a lot of the worldwide economic engine is powered by Chinese manufacturing and at this point too, Chinese demand. Like a lot of luxury brands are getting a lot of their growth by now finally figuring out strategies to penetrate the Chinese market. So uh, we're very interconnected, even though manufacturing is kind of coming back to the U.S. and sort of retreating to the West and other Western countries as well. We're going to have a long period where we're still very, very much intertwined and dependent on the health and wealth of the Chinese economy as well. So just something to watch. And I guess, Justin, that kind of gets us into sort of the back half here as we're thinking about other things to watch. Like we have the exi- we're, we're kind of also worried about the same thing a little bit because the main thing driving down the Chinese economy is spending. And next week, the big thing we're watching is consumer spending. Just in this week we got word that U.S. credit card debt is at one trillion dollars and while that's a splashy headline like compared to actual real wage growth it's not that big of a deal but one thing we're watching really closely is Target and Walmart earnings coming in tandem next week which are kind of our big sort of like leading indicators on where consumer spending is going before we get like the big U.S. data so Justin I'm wondering like from your perspective how's consumer spending doing and is this something we should actually worry about especially with the backdrop that credit card debt's just like crazy right now and student loan debt is about to get started up again come october yeah i mean the credit card like debt is is scary crossing over one trillion dollars it's it's not insignificant by any means um it is something to be fearful of having said that when you look at wage income growth real wages um relative to debt historically it's because like we're at a massive period where people are making a lot more than they were you know 5 10 15 20 years ago so that's something to be fearful of we do think the fears are a little bit overblown when you start comparing the two, because in isolation, obviously, if debt is moving up, it's it's fearful. But if people are making more, then obviously the ability to pay down that debt um, is significant. So I think that's one thing we're watching for. Um, aren't necessarily waving a red flag over, but something we're looking at pretty closely. Past that, to your point, earnings next week will 
will shed a lot of light as proxies for economic numbers in terms of like these companies being such sales leaders in the U.S. So if something slows down there, you know there's a good chance it's uh, going to be showing up in the, the economic as numbers as well. But I think past that, when we look at consumer spending, the the biggest theme that we've continued to talk about for a while now is this shift from goods to services. And that's why we've been so overweight to start the year, airlines, hotels, um, and, and companies that are like going to end up benefiting from tailwinds in, in experiences over services. And that's why we've also been bullish on DraftKings and a lot of stocks that have performed really well this year. We've talked about Formula One um, and their parent company and another company we've been watching for really closely um, that we'll be releasing a report on next week will be Endeavor Holdings, which is the holding company to WWE and UFC. And that continues for us to be a big theme this year into next year is this spending on experiences over goods um, as the world continues and continuously more and more reopens. So I think from a consumer spending perspective, that's where we see a lot of money going. So even if next week things slow down um, from some of these big conglomerates on corporate earnings, as long as those companies continuously get the tailwinds from experiences over services or experiences over goods, we'll, we'll still be satisfied. And I, th- I think that'll be a good uh, bellwether that like w- our predictions are, are continuously coming true. And that's the thing too, audience, like you have to sort of like watch the trends and also find the winners within the trends. And one thing we're really proud of is the criteria we use to sort of pick our winners in the airline space amidst this travel recovery, right? Like we basically kind of threaded the needle in terms of going with uh, Delta and United while other airlines are struggling a little bit. Both Delta and United are focusing on luxury travel and international travel, which is the principal areas of growth. And that's kind of what you're seeing across the board as well. Uh, in addition, next week you're going to be seeing us kind of covering the other side of that, like which financial products are helping people do international travel and luxury travel the most. Hint, it's Visa. We'll get into that later, though. You'll see the actual report. As always, you can check us out over at Moby.co um, and you know, sign up for a free trial see our sort of long-term perspective here. But that's the main reason why we've been having a good time is just finding these not only relative moments of strength in the economy, but getting to that next criteria of, okay, who's going to win within an industry? Because we're very much in an era of winners and losers where even a, a slight weakness was forgiven five years ago and you would just kind of ride the S&P no matter what but now you have to be compared favorably to your competitors that's why we went with Blackstone this week too because they have a trillion dollars of assets under management and they have a lot of weight to throw around and it doesn't matter that a lot of that weight is in real estate that could potentially blow up because a lot of Blackstone's rivals are in a much worse real estate position so as they weaken that strength will flow to Blackstone as Jet so goes JetBlue's weakness flows right into Delta and United Airlines same thing with American if they the weaker they get the stronger united gets so on and so forth so you're going to you're going to watch a very much zero-sum game emerge in a lot of these industries and that's one of the big frameworks we're using right now because this is a very jumpy market and people are going to fight scratch and bleed for every single tenth of a percent of gains they can get out of the stock market as we slowly push our way back towards recovery but justin you you mentioned it first so i'm going to round it out with just talking about one of our favorite picks from last year that's finally hit our price target but then just got absolutely smacked in the face this week that's DraftKings. Uh, we're, we're putting up our new report for DraftKings now because the stock managed to get hit five percent this week on news that ESPN is going to go from sports media to uh, sports betting. They literally bought the Barstool sports book and gave Barstool Sports back to Dave Portnoy. Um, Justin, when you look at this. Um, and you look at sort of like Disney just kind of struggle its way out of you know a lot of really interesting financial situations. The main thing, the main question I have is. Um, 
when you're looking at the uh, situation here, like, can DraftKings stand up for ESPN, or is this kind of like ESPN's game to lose, dude? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, like, ESPN obviously has such a bigger name out there than um than what do you call it does than uh than barstool ever had i mean barstool at the end of the day is relatively niche and espn has mass consumer appeal so i think a lot of these companies like the biggest thing for them over the last few years has been spending a ton on marketing in order to get people in the door because the lifetime values were so high so if their customer acquisition costs were absurd it was fine because once you get somebody there they stay if espn starts rolling out like these ridiculous packages um We'll see if it ends up like getting consumers to convert over. But I mean, I'd have to think, you know, they have a decent chance of winning in the long run. In the short term, the reason Penn had to get rid of Barstool is because Barstool was so brash. They weren't able to like basically get approved elsewhere um, in terms of the regulation needed. And so that's going to probably cause some sort of hiccup, I would imagine, for ESPN. But I think at this point, it's a little too early to tell, but we're continuing to say overweight our names. Hell yeah, dude. Okay, I just wanted to get that out. That's going to take a long time to play out, especially with Bob Iger maybe selling Disney to Apple, but we'll cover that a little bit later once more news comes out. For now, I think that's a solid place to end it. Justin, any any final thoughts from you before I go ahead and read the credits here? As always, just great conversation, really kind of blown away. This is only 30 minutes, you know? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to watch for everyone is that just because it's August and it's slower in the markets doesn't mean things aren't happening. And I think you're seeing a lot of longer term narratives play out right now in terms of this shift that we've seen over the first eight months of the year into what we'll see, you know, through the the rest of the year. We talked about at the beginning of the podcast, but I think that's something that if you're looking at trends, you know, you shouldn't be like, oh, well, the market's, you know, done amazing. Rates are still high. Um, and it looks like we're coming out of this and thinking, oh, things are going to be great because a lot of that's already priced and a lot of people are thinking that and that's why the prices have gone up. So watching these longer term narratives, understanding which companies within them will actually continue to do well, which won't. I think that's going to be the biggest thing. So as always, definitely, you know, if you haven't downloaded our app already, check it out. A lot of great information in there. We post daily on our findings and happenings and, you know, we'll continuously keep you guys updated. Hell yeah, dude. And as always, it's a good solid place to end it. So, you know, the main thing is always is you got to think long term. The only way to lose this game audience is being a forced seller. So, you know, avoid leverage still because the market can still shift any which way. We can still have a commercial real estate bomb come out of nowhere. Consumer spending can continue bottoming out in a way that the market finally gets spooked and gives it the ghost, so to speak. But as long as you're keeping your, your, your positions small, keeping them long term and thinking more on a two to five year time scale, you're going to win regardless. And that's how we're going to be thinking about it as well. Again, if you want more that long-term perspective you can join us over at app.mobi.co download our app get a free trial see what's up you also instantly get access to our newsletter which is sort of like your daily pulse check for the market we're expanding that into weekends as well so you can get sort of like a deep dive of what happened this week and what's going to happen next week every saturday in your inbox as well check that out otherwise audience we really appreciate your time also you can feel free to check us out over at instagram and tiktok to get sort of more data-based breakdowns of what's going on regardless i think it's a solid place to end that so just so you know audience this podcast is produced hosted and voiced by me peter star all the intellectual value that comes out of moby.co comes from our analyst team which is headed up by justin kramer ceo co-founder and chief analyst here at moby.co if you have any questions for us you can always feel free to hit us up at hello at moby.co or join us over at our discord where this is actually recorded in front of a live studio audience either way audience thank you so much for your time we really appreciate y'all and as always we can leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much